0: Tonight we will talk about the happiness of equanimity. The Buddha described many, many kinds of happiness that we can experience as human beings in this world. There's the happiness of generosity, the happiness of metta, the happiness of mudita or joy. There's the happiness of concentration, there's the happiness of uh, compassion, many kinds of happiness, the happiness of a clear conscience or um, sila. But he said there was one kind of happiness that is the highest kind of mundane happiness, worldly happiness, and that's the happiness of equanimity or peace. And equanimity and peace, it's a refined kind of happiness, a quiet kind of happiness, not as gross as we would sometimes think of happiness. Um, as we meditate more, we tend to develop an appreciation for, for this more subtle kind of happiness rather than the um, more agitated kind of happiness that we often think of when we think of that word happiness. There's a story from a book that I really enjoyed reading called Buddha Takes No Prisoners by Patrick O'Fools. It says there was once a yogi doing an intensive solitary retreat in a remote cabin by the side of a stream. After a few days of practice he began to hear the stream playing the Star Spangled Banner. Maddened by the constant repetition of this unloved anthem, He went outside and started rearranging the rocks, (laughs) hoping that the stream would either shut up or play a different tune. No such luck. After three fruitless attempts to manipulate external reality, he finally got it. The problem was not in the stream, but in his own mind, whereupon the stream just burbled. You could say that equanimity is a kind of happiness that points towards personal responsibility for our happiness, that ultimately it's an inside job. This is not to deny that there are conditions in the world that make it awfully difficult to even have the space for this inner contemplation, which is why we're so fortunate that we have uh, the quiet and solitude here to do this inner contemplation, to understand for ourselves, what is happiness? How do we touch happiness? Untrained worldlings, as the Buddha calls um, people who don't take uh, the time to look at their minds and hearts Untrained worldlings tend to look for happiness in the sensory world. And the basic recipe is that if we can increase the pleasant um, moments of sensory experience and decrease the unpleasant moments of sensory experience, then we will be happy. And this is, you know, a general cultural understanding of happiness. And there is some success there. That's why I think it, uh, it traps us. That's why I think we believe this recipe, is that there is some success. That when we create a certain amount of comfort in our lives, there's some happiness there. There's no denying that. And when our bodies are free of pain, there's a certain kind of happiness there. It's true. You could even say that meditation helps us access this sensory happiness. You may have noticed that as you became quieter and your mind, heart became more collected, that you do have this ability to appreciate more the beauty in the world, the beauty of the peonies on the altar, or even just the taste of rice, the richness of the bell sound, the green in the trees, all these sensory kinds of happiness that we can experience more deeply and fully because our minds are collected and here. Thich Han says, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. And I think this is one level that he means that it's good. It's even good to be able to nourish our hearts and minds through this kind of happiness. But happiness of sense pleasures, uh, the six senses and pleasantness there, (laughs) it's an unreliable happiness. The simple truth, as we've been saying all week, is that we have taken birth in a world of change. This is the way things are. It's constant. I remember my eighth grade science teacher said, the only thing constant in the world is change. So we have this hope that we can find happiness by managing this universe of constant change, by managing this universe of constant change to manifest in ways that are agreeable to us. But we can see that this is a very restless task. We're always scrambling because it's always changing. This has a lot to do with the underlying restlessness of the human condition. So it's clearly not a road to peace, trying to control this world. And what the Buddha saw that actually motivated him to teach is that it's this very strategy that we employ for happiness that causes our suffering. This strategy of trying to find happiness through control in a universe of change causes contraction of heart and mind, dukkha, suffering. Our culture uh, very much reinforces this belief that that happiness can be found in and increasing sense pleasure and decreasing pain. A quote for you from, I'll tell you afterwards, from Who. We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit, and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible. In order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. That sounds like that could have been written um, anytime recently, but it was actually written by Thomas Merton. Wow, I think it was in the 1920s. <laughs> Still that way, isn't it? <laughs> Or a recent uh, Newsweek, well it's not so recent now, a few years ago, Newsweek cover. It says, what you'll want next. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 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 Or more recently, I have a Honda car and uh, somehow I got some, well when I first bought it, I had all these emails from them, I finally got them to stop, but they sent me um, one that said, quote-unquote, something new to crave. (laughs) Crave (laughs) Crave.honda.org I didn't go to their website. (laughs) I just love that (laughs) Crave.honda.org. Or we also, so, so, so this is one way we're taught to be happy very much. I mean, it's human conditioning, but our society has really taken it to an art form. And then there's the other side of like, okay, if I can avoid pain, that will make me happy. You know, that will be, that will work. And uh, I have this, this uh, ad from a newspaper, it's for Maidl. It says, Maidl, com- completely re- relief, complete Nirvana. Maidol helps get rid of your symptoms so you can get on with your life. All you need is Maidol. <laughs> Complete nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So we need to look uh, carefully at these beliefs about what will bring us happiness. And we really need to kill the myth that there's a way through life that is only comfort and no pain. It's just not the universe we were born into. So the teachings of the Buddha come to us as a way to cultivate a realistic happiness that is in line with the way things are. And what teaches us this truth is life itself. Charlotte Joko Beck, one of my favorite teachers says, life happens to be a severe and endlessly kind teacher. It's the only authority you need to trust. And this teacher, this authority is everywhere. So by paying attention with mindfulness to how life is, we learn the truth of change. And by ta- paying attention to how we relate to this world of change, we can find peace, this highest kind of worldly happiness. So we make this shift the paradigm shift for looking for happiness in uh, worldly conditions being a certain way. And we see what other kind of happiness there may be available to us. I teach every year the teen retreat here. So we have usually around 60 teenagers from 14 to 19 and it's quite a lovely time. And one of them, after the retreat this last year, wrote this following piece. I'll read a little bit to you. Last summer, during a sit toward the end of the teen course, I was going about my normal routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath, and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly, I experienced a first in my meditation practice. I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful. It wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. So the Buddhist answer to the happiness question goes beyond this basic paradigm of trying to arrange conditions to be satisfactory for us. And the key to learning happiness in the Buddhist teachings is to look at how we relate to experience in each moment. So it's really about our relationship to what's happening not what's happening. And as I said, the Buddha taught that this highest kind of happiness is the happiness of equanimity, which is a mind that, can, that is balanced and at peace with things as they are, and that can accept the changing experiences of life with peace, with a sense of gracefulness, poise, So equanimity is a mind that's not contracted, but rather spacious, open, connected. Now the reason why this is the highest kind of worldly happiness is because it's not dependent on conditions. So it's a kind of unconditional happiness. So there's freedom there when there's not dependency on conditions, there's freedom. So equanimity is an unbound mind, a mind that is free of our addiction to pleasure and avoidance of pain. Now we could see that this is very useful in a world of change. Part of the beauty of equanimity is that we quit looking for happiness as some kind of future state that we may someday achieve, something that's out there some other time besides for now. And we see that each moment offers itself fresh to us as a time to experience peace. The present moment never gives up on us. So how do we develop this spacious mind of equanimity, the unbound mind of equanimity? (laughs) Basically, we have to understand the reactive mind. We have to understand, we have to be willing to get intimate with the contracted mind, the mind of reactivity. That may not be the news you wanted to hear. (laughs) We have to do a deep investigation of the truth of change and what the mind-heart does faced with this truth. So the heart of practice is understanding our response to this fundamental truth of change, the response of the heart-mind and all that it implies about suffering and happiness. So the Buddha gave very technical uh, teachings on understanding how the heart-mind gets bound or contracted. And I'm gonna give a little description of this. It said that in each moment of sense contact so that's each moment of our experience that there is concurrent with the sense contact of feeling tone and the feeling tone is either pleasant unpleasant or neutral so in a moment of hearing for example the experience is going the first impression of the experience is going to be either pleasant unpleasant or neutral for us and this is even before we think about it, this is just how it impacts the sense door. So moment of sight, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Moment of taste, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If we're not mindful, when the sense experience is pleasant, there's going to be this reactivity of wanting to hold on. So Michelle was talking about this a little bit this morning. Pleasant without mindfulness leads to contraction of wanting. If we're not mindful and the sense contact is unpleasant, then the mind has this tendency to react by pushing away. If it's neutral and we're not mindful, we tend to have the reaction of spacing out, not paying a lot of attention. If the sense contact is pleasant and we're mindful, there's the opportunity to experience a mind that does not go into clinging. If the experience is unpleasant and we're mindful, There's the opportunity to be with the experience without aversion. So we explore how this happens in the mind. We get very interested in seeing for ourselves how this conditioning works. The Buddha also said that in this chain of conditioning, there's two places that we can break the chain of suffering. The first place is, in the reactivity itself, being mindful of the reactivity itself, being mindful of the clinging or pushing away. And the second place is, well actually the first place, (laughs) I got them backwards, the first place is at the actual feeling tone, mindfulness of the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The second place is mindfulness of the reactivity that has arisen, the clinging or the pushing away. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about those two places that we can bring attention to really develop understanding leading to peace. So let's start with looking at the reaction because that's where most of us come in, right? Where the reaction has already set in. So pleasant can condition Wanting, clinging, holding on of some kind, if we're not mindful. Unpleasant can condition aversion, pushing away, fear, anger, irritation, if we're not mindful. So we become interested in this reactivity of mind. We become interested in it and we turn our attention towards it to understand. So for example, we're sitting here and we have a pleasant fantasy going on and we notice that we want to keep going back to this pleasant fantasy. We keep going back to it, we turn towards the wanting itself, the mind that is wanting that fantasy. And we look at what, what's going on, how do we experience that? Sometimes when we turn to look at it, it just, it, it goes away. You know, so, so there's this wanting, the fantasy. We turn to look at the wanting, and then it's like, oh, it drops away. Other times it doesn't, and we really get interested in that wanting. What's it like? How do I experience it in the body? What happens in the mind? We get, um, we get to know it really well. We have to get to know it really well. Or the aversion. So we're sitting here, and there's a pain in the knee and we want it to go away. So we can pay attention to the pain in the knee, but we also pay attention to the mind that's aversive, that wants it to go away. What does that feel like? How do we experience that in the body and the mind? We notice it as a reaction to the unpleasantness. So we're doing a little scientific experiment here, and we're the guinea pigs, understanding how reactivity comes into play and how to bring mindfulness to it. So our tendency, if we're not aware, is to get lost in the wanting or to get lost in the aversion. With mindfulness, we have the ability to see it clearly as it is. When we don't believe it, when we don't believe these stories of wanting and aversion, when we don't get lost in them and identified with them, believing them, when we have the awareness to know what's happening, they can arise and pass away on their own. So we start to understand that we don't have to take them so personally. At first, we take them very personally, which means that we believe them, we get lost in them, we feel like they're ours. And then over time, we can just be aware when they arise and pass away, but we don't have to take them so personally. And as we do this, it's like we can get lighter and lighter with the wanting and aversion itself. It's like each moment that we can bring mindfulness and understanding to the wanting and aversion, it's like just a little bit, we're lessening their power to dominate us. But it comes from meeting it directly and being willing to be with it and experience it. One of my favorite stories about this lightness that can come is from the um, one of Sharon Salzberg's book, About the Dalai Lama. It says, we all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them, but if we become lost in attachment, enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and we suffer. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about the tour of the monastery he had been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruit cakes. Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. (laughs) He laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate, really I was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly, he could be quite happy without a piece of fruitcake, and some part of this state of happiness was a ability to laugh at himself. There's a certain lightness there, right? It's like he wanted, he wanted the cake, but you could tell he wasn't taking that wanting personally. He was just noticing that it had arisen. There wasn't the sense of being bound and um, caught by his mind. So this is the kind of lightness that we can develop with our own hearts and minds. So basically through this investigation of clinging, and aversion. We're learning about letting go of attachment. Letting go doesn't mean pushing away, getting rid of. <laughs> it means um, letting be and the, dis- and the attachment disso- dissolving, our attachments losing their power over us. But the poignant truth about this is it isn't so easy for us to do this. One yogi told me a few months ago, everything I have let go of has claw marks all over it, which is... <laughs> this is a, the a human condition, right? It's like, ah! <laughs> Do I have to? <laughs> when we hear about letting go, it's a kind of common phrase We often think that we're letting go of something, but the truth is what we're letting go of is the attachment. The thing's already gone. That great sitting you had, it's gone. It's finished. Lunch, it's gone. Letting go feels good. It's that release of struggle and contraction. But we have to be careful that we don't make equanimity into some kind of lofty ideal that we then try to plaster on top of our experience. So it's not some kind of feigned indifference or detachment, I'm above all that. Sometimes that masquerades as equanimity, but we can feel the difference. So it's not about, equanimity. It's not about disowning our experience, but it's about actually connecting with it fully, whatever it is. This process allows us to be very, very human on our path and it allows the cleaning out of the heart and the mind and the meeting of the truth that all that arises, passes away. And we see that whatever we come up that challenges us is exactly the teacher we need to learn this. So I say that equanimity demands emotional honesty. The best way to develop equanimity is to be really honest about what's happening rather than trying to create equanimity. Somewhere I read that if we try to pretend where we, to be where we think we should be, it's like putting frosting on a rotten cake. <laughs> <laughs> or capping a tooth before you take the decay out. These are not going to work very well. (laughs) So we bring this kindness-infused awareness to the full range of our response to change. Sometimes it won't be too hard. Maybe that we wanted millet for breakfast and it was oatmeal. Well, maybe just a teeny claw mark or two and then we can let go. But there's other times that when we experience great loss, change, that we're not excited about, that it can take a long time, that we have to be very patient. Recently, I went through um, a change in an organization that I'm involved in. And uh, before the change happened, we'd been tooting along very nicely. Things have been going quite well. and um, been running very smoothly, and then some things happened and uh, things changed, and um, some changes happened at the organization that I wasn't actually really in favor of. And at first, I um, tried to be a grown-up human being. (laughs) It's like, oh, this is fine, I can do this. (laughs) I'm joking when I said grown-up human being. And, um, you know, I thought that I was being pretty equanimous with what was happening. And then I started to notice that I was sniping at people. You know, you know snipe, you go in with a little jab here and there. I was like, huh, I think there's something going on here besides for equanimity. And then I realized that I actually wasn't so happy with what was going on. And I started a process of really allowing myself to feel exactly what I was feeling about what was going on. And it took a few months, there was, you know, different manifestations of aversion and attachment and took a few months, Um, but I just kept saying to myself, you know, I'm not gonna pretend, I'm gonna be right where I'm at. And obviously with care that I didn't like um, spread around what was going on for me, but, but being very honest about it. And, it was, and it's great, it was just another proof to me that these teachings really work because over time um, the attachment began to lessen and lessen and there was more peace and more peace. Finally the moment where things really changed for me was one moment when I just, I, I got it, I, I thought, did I really think it was never going to change? It's like, oh, okay. And so when I really got that truth of change, then it was like, okay, I can let go now. When I so clinging attachment is actually our protection from truth that we're not really ready to open to yet. So it might even be just, just something like that, that sitting that good sitting. We're not really ready to open to the truth that it's gone. Even so, we hold on, hope that we can get it again. And so these claw marks, they're not, they're not bad, they're not wrong. They're just a reflection of our humanity, a sign that we're alive, that we're doing our best. that we're struggling with the truth of change. And so we can have compassion for ourselves when reactivity arises in the face of change, when clinging or aversion arise, we can have compassion for ourselves. With equanimity, we let go of wishing that things are different than they are. But we don't do this easily because we like the illusion of control. Attachment is the illusion of control. It's like magical thinking. If I stay attached, I will have control over the outcome. There was this book that I read recently um, about a woman, written by a woman in New York who lost her husband, and she describes the, the year afterwards. She'd been married for a long time, maybe 40 years. And uh, she describes the year afterwards and the process of you know, coming to terms with this huge change. And she called, the book is called The Year of Magical Thinking <laughs> because there's this, um, she would find how it would come up for her, this uh, kind of denial of the change, the thinking that maybe he would come around, you know, maybe he was just coming back, attachment. But magical thinking, that's really what attachment is, it's magical thinking. So I'm really interested these days in how long it takes me when change happens. How long it takes me to uh, stop struggling with the truth. Really curious about it. I find it fascinating. A great place to to practice this is in airports, and um, I travel some to teach and. And I, I, I went through, at one point, I went through this uh, series of bad experiences in Chicago. Uh, I would teach out west and try to take the last flights home and um, uh, several times had trouble in Chicago. And so I, I'd get off the plane and go to the board to see uh, my connecting flight. And then I, I, I'd see, you know, the flight number and then I'd see canceled. And it was so interesting just to watch how I would deal with that. Because the first thing my mind would say is, it's not true. (laughs) You know, the magical thinking, you know, is that attachment, you know. And so then I'd look again, you know, sometimes I'd have to look like three times before I would start maybe accepting that it was true. This was always the last flight of the day, mind you. So it it meant uh, I was spending a night in the airport or somewhere close by. And... um, So then, so then, so first there'd be the denial it's not happening. And then there'd be the, you know, the upset. I want to get home. And then I was curious, like, how long would it take till the upset would start to die down a little bit until I'd finally go, oh, this is the way things are. I'm spending the night in Chicago, you know. So it's like not to judge ourselves, but to just get really curious, how does this work? Uh, Bringing mindfulness to the whole process. And what I love about that is giving ourselves a freedom to really explore rather than to judge what's happening. I believe we really have to develop equanimity with non-equanimity and we really wanna be free we can't even prefer being equanimous over being non-equanimous. Freedom means that we're really, we really let it be just as it is. That's going, That's pretty wide open, right? And we can have some fun with this too. You know, exploring the. The mind of clinging, craving, attachment, aversion. A number of years ago, I went on a, um, I did a self retreat out in the wilderness in June. And um, before I was going to go, I was looking at the weather forecast, and the first four days were supposed to be quite cold and rainy, and. Look, you know, I was like, "Well, should I cancel? Should I?" And then I thought, "Well, no, I really want to do this retreat. This is the time I have. And besides, if I want to learn equanimity, it's a great time to practice it." So, I I was I went confining on this uh, lake in the Adirondacks. My partner actually very kindly came and helped me set up, and then took off. And so it was cold. It was in the 40s, and it was rainy, and I was camping. And um, so I would wake up in the morning, and I would look out the tent, and I'd see that it was foggy, cold, rainy. This happened a number of days, so I let myself have a five-minute reactivity session every morning. (laughs) (laughs) It was like for five minutes, I would just uh, complain in my mind. This isn't, I don't like this. I don't want this to be happening, it's cold. I want some sun, oh, you know, I just, and then after five minutes, I'd be like, okay, well, how am I gonna go about accepting things as they are? It was really quite fun. <laughs> Doesn't sound fun, it was. <laughs> you know, and it was fine. I just dressed warm and, and uh, that's okay. And then, and then after like four or five days of that, and the weather switched. It was in the 70s. It was beautiful. It was sunny. The bugs came out. <laughs> you know, this is the way life is. <laughs> then I had to deal with the bugs. <laughs> another time, um, I, I, I was going through my notes and noticed this afternoon, a, a little note I put in there another time. I had, um, played with, with, with the craving mind. I called it being bested by a brownie. I, um, I teach out west sometimes and there's one place I go where we have this tradition that we make some brownies when I get there. They have these really good brownie mixes. Any of you experiencing craving? <laughs> and so one time I had this brownie and um, I was going to take it back to my little cabin and leave it there and uh, for the next day. And somehow, I went back to my cabin, and the brownie was so good. It didn't make it till the the next day. So I I ate the brownie, and then I was like, wow. Attachment to this, or craving for this brownie just totally got the better of me. I've been bested by a brownie. You know, I was like, huh, that's so interesting. So the next day, I'm like, okay, today I'm gonna do this mindfully. I'm gonna take a brownie back, and I am not going to eat it and uh so so i so i took it back and then i just watched you know the craving would arise i would notice it be mindful of it it would die down a little later the craving would arise i would notice it be mindful of it and it would die down and that time i won (laughs) it was just being interested also i didn't want a brownie to beat me So another point, um, so one point that we can work with, with developing equanimity and freedom is, is to, to meet the reactivity, to um, bring mindfulness to it, and to see how um, developing understanding brings in freedom. The other point that we can look at um, to develop equanimity is the feeling tone itself, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So if we're particularly stuck, we can um, kind of go back and notice what is conditioning the craving or conditioning the um, aversion. So back to the fantasy in the mind, if we have this fantasy that keeps pulling us, we can actually turn and notice that it's pleasant, and that the pleasantness is what's conditioning the grasping or the clinging, and and so we can be with the pleasantness itself. We can be mindful of the feeling tone, and sometimes if we can do that, we can just rest there. Not always. Sometimes the mind will go into the... Um, the grasping, but sometimes it's just like, oh, it's pleasant. That's okay. I can be with that just as it is. Same with aversion. Something comes up it's unpleasant. I think I described the other day the lawnmower and how um, noticing that the lawnmower was unpleasant. There was that moment when I could rest with that. The mind didn't need to um, the, the mindfulness was strong enough that it didn't, the aversion couldn't take over, or didn't take over. Could just be with the unpleasantness. So it only takes like a moment to see that. It's really a powerful moment to see that pleasantness doesn't automatically have to lead to clinging. Like unpleasantness doesn't have to automatically lead to aversion. They're close, you know. They, 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 they follow each other pretty co- closely in, in most of our minds. But but we can learn like there, that there can be a gap there by paying attention. So we start to learn very deeply that The problem isn't in what's happening. The problem isn't in the sense contact itself. The problem or the challenge is in um, our relationship to what's happening, the reactivity that can arise to what's happening. It's getting late. So as equanimity increases, we discover an increased ability to rest in the vulnerability of life and the change, the constant change. It's like we, we we're willing to let down that prison wall of invulnerability. And as, we, as equanimity develops, we find an increased sense of stability and strength in our lives. Sometimes the image is used of a mountain, a mountain, rains, snows, hails, wind, whatever. A mountain has that stability to just be. So we learn a certain strength and resilience through equanimity that's quite beautiful. It also leads to a growing sense of fearlessness in our lives. If we practice the ability to be open to whatever our experience is, what do we have to be afraid of? As we learn that we can accept whatever comes our way, there's an increased fearlessness There's also an increased sense of flow and unity in our lives as, as equanimity increases, a kind of seamlessness. There's less of a division between this I will experience and this I won't. This is part of my life. This isn't. This is acceptable. This is not. We have an increasing willingness to accept that life is a mixture of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. That this is the tapestry of a human life. I'm going to read for you a story from um, Rachel Naomi Remen. Kitchen Table Wisdom I think is the name of the book. So she talks about how in her family when she's a child uh, was a child that they often had a giant jigsaw puzzle set up on, set up on the living room table and that people would come and do some pieces for a while and leave it and that over time it would get finished. So she says, um, the puzzle table was my father's birthday present to my mother. I can see him setting it up and gleefully pouring the pieces of that first puzzle from the box on the tabletop. So the first time she's present about the first time it happened. I was three or four and I did not understand my mother's delight. They hadn't explained this game to me, doubt thinking I was too young to participate. But I wanted to participate even then. Alone in the living room early one morning, I climbed on a chair and spread out hundreds of loose pieces lying on the table. The pieces were fairly small, some were brightly colored and some dark and shadowy. The dark ones seemed like spiders or bugs, ugly and a little frightening. They made me feel uncomfortable. Gathering up a few of these, I climbed down and hid them under one of the sofa cushions. For several weeks, whenever I was alone in the living room, I would climb up on the chair, take a few more dark pieces, and add them to the cache under the cushion. So this first puzzle took the family a very long time to finish. <laughs> Frustrated, my mother finally counted the pieces and realized that more than 100 were missing. She asked me if I had seen them. I told her then what I had done with the pieces I didn't like, and she rescued them and completed the puzzle. I remember watching her do this. As piece after dark piece was put in place and the picture emerged, I was astounded. I had not known there would be a picture. It was quite beautiful, a placeful scene of a deserted beach. Without the pieces I had hidden, the game made no sense. Maybe winning requires that we lose the game unconditionally. Life provides all of the pieces. When I accepted certain parts of my life and denied and ignored the rest, I could only see my life a piece at a time. The happiness of a success or a time of celebration or the otherliness and pain of a loss or a failure. I was trying hard to put me, put behind me out of sight. But like the dark pieces of the puzzle, these sadder events, painful as they are, have proven themselves a part of something larger. What brief glimpse I had of something hidden seemed to require accepting as a gift every last piece. So all of the challenges in our lives gives us a chance to develop equanimity. And sometimes they're just small challenges, like not getting our favorite walking spot, (laughs) or a lunch that we love or or don't like, or a knee pain. It seems little, but this is our life, all of these moments, every moment a chance to check out how we're relating, whether there's peace or reactivity. And from dealing with all the small moments of our life, we develop strength and resilience so that when the bigger challenges come along, that we have tools for how to work with them. The bigger challenges like a chronic illness or the challenges of intimate relationships Losing our job. So equanimity is a happiness where we can take some refuge because it's a happiness that's in alignment with the truth. The truth that things change. And the heart and mind slowly begin to learn that knowing this truth brings the deepest kind of happiness. Knowing this truth of change very, very, very intimately brings the deepest kind of happiness, which is this happiness of peace. It learns that letting go of attachment is the way to be happy. That letting go is the natural thing to do. I'd like to end with a quote from Nina Weiss from, I got this out of um, Inquiring Mind magazine, I think it comes from a book of hers. Um, When I began to practice Buddhism, I learned that the Buddha presented a methodology for freedom from suffering. I imagined this meant I could manage life's myriad challenges in a state of steady, unmediated bliss. As my practice deepened, I grew to understand that freedom is not about resting in sublime equanimity despite the suffering of others. Freedom is about the willingness to feel deeply. Freedom is about the willingness to fall apart. Freedom is about not holding. On, is about holding on to nothing. And at the heart of that letting go, that surrender, you discover something sublime and unspeakably heartbreakingly raw. Call it love, call it compassion, call it kindness, call it redemption. A bodhisattva, um, oh, I don't have time to explain what that is, but a bodhisattva suffers willingly, sokni Rinpoche had said, and with a willingness to suffer emerges a profound joy. Freedom that embraces what is acceptable and rejects what is not is not freedom. Freedom is wholly democratic. Freedom includes everything. Let's sit for a minute.